I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special three-part podcast for Male Plus Health, where I speak to Professor Richard Schilling, President of the British Heart Rhythm Society, Professor of Cardiology and Chairman of Welbeck Heart Health in London. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, looking forward to hearing the questions, which are all very interesting. You're a very esteemed member of the medical establishment, so I'm really delighted to get this opportunity to kind of pick your brains about cardiology. So that's everything to do with the heart, isn't it? That's right, yeah. My particular interest is in heart rhythm problems, um, which have, you know, can either cause palpitations or faints or even cardiac arrest in rare occasions, yeah. So Richard, can you, can you explain then, just to start off, what, what is the difference between a heart rhythm, a heartbeat? You know, we've got all these, all these terms, aren't there, to do with our heart, and I suppose it's got often quite confusing. Yeah, so the analogy I often draw is it's a bit like a car engine, and the car engine has a fuel supply, which is the petrol, but it also has an ignition and timing system, which is electrical. So the heart rhythm is determined by this electrical system that makes the chambers beat in sync and at the right rate. The heart rate is how fast the heart is going, and the heart rhythm is the order in which the chambers beat and the regularity. So most people would normally have a very regular heart rhythm, but the rate would change depending on what they were doing because you need to get your heart rate up to produce more blood. So when you're exercising, your heart will go faster in order to deliver more blood and oxygen to the system. So the rate varies quite a bit, but the rhythm usually is fairly steady. And what about blood pressure then? How's that? Because it's all related in a way, isn't it? It is. So the blood pressure is that the force or pressure that that pump, the heart, produces in the system. And so the reason that having a high blood pressure is a bad thing to have over many years is because it makes the heart work harder and of course the cardiovascular system which is just basically plumbing is more likely to leak or cause a problem if you're running it at a high pressure. So blood pressure one-off readings being high is not dangerous but having it running like that for years and years makes you more vulnerable to the pump and the cardiovascular system going wrong. And and also when people's pressure is low, that can also cause problems, can't it? Well, interestingly, if it doesn't cause symptoms, then actually the lower your blood pressure, the longer you live. There was a very interesting study in the US where they took nurses and they found that the nurses with the lowest blood pressures actually lived the longest, which makes sense because their heart and cardiovascular system wasn't having to work as hard. However, if your blood pressure is low because of other reasons, like you're dehydrated or you've lost blood or you're overtreated with medication, then it can cause unpleasant symptoms if it's excessive, making you feel dizzy or lightheaded, particularly if you stand up quickly. That's interesting. So, so actually, so your blood pressure, if it, if it is low, it's not necessarily a problem unless it's a problem for you. Exactly. And the same is true for heart rate, that you're natural heart rate may be very low and that's completely fine if it's not causing symptoms it's only a problem if it's causing symptoms so um i also i wanted to ask you was first off really about your work with covid uh because you were you were at the nightingale weren't you 
Yeah, so I was uh, the Deputy Clinical Director at the Nightingale, and that was partly because at that time uh, cardiologists weren't particularly useful, so they put me into that position to try and do something useful because my normal job as a heart rhythm specialist wasn't as busy. So, yeah, it was an amazing and great experience with a brilliant team to work with there. And there's a link, isn't there? Well, I think we're now sort of understanding there's a link between COVID and heart problems. Can you, can you tell me a bit about that? What do we know? Yes. Yeah, so COVID is a really horrible and weird uh, virus infection that gives you the acute infection that you might expect from any virus. But it also then seems to trigger this immune reaction in the body itself that makes you hypersensitive and hypercoagulable. And by that, I mean that your, your blood tends to clot, you get inflammation of various organs, including the heart. And that inflammation can reveal itself as chest pain, uh, palpitations, rarely even heart failure. And that probably explains why even patients that have recovered from fairly mild COVID infections seem to now be burdened by longer term problems with lethargy and ill health. And there's some recent evidence that it may even affect the brain in the longer term as well. I was also deemed not that important um, as well <laughs> during the pandemic. So lots of myself and lots of uh, my colleagues were kind of put also on COVID wards. And then what, I think what sort of became quite apparent was that we assumed it was going to be a lung or a respiratory um, issue. And actually it was much more complicated. And we were seeing people who were coming in strokes and things like that. And we yeah. realised it's actually much more of a kind of multi-system, so kind of affecting different parts of the body, but, and also particularly the cardiovascular system, the, the kind of heart and the, all the plumbing side of things. Yeah, so they can get, the, they can get inflammation. Um, it's difficult to know whether you're more prone to get a heart attack because, um, and by heart attack, I mean a blockage of the artery that supplies the heart muscle with blood uh, as opposed to a cardiac arrest, which is where you go into a crazy rhythm that stops your heart beating properly. So heart attacks seem to be less common during this crisis uh, maybe because people were reluctant to attend hospital, but they were more likely to have inflammation of the heart muscle probably as, as a result of the virus and rarely even heart failure as a result of that. So that's you've touched on something there that also I wanted to ask you about. Everyone's been sort of pouring over these death rates and so on that's coming out each day. And there was some kind of murmuring that's saying, well, actually, some of these are attributable to people who are having heart attacks or problems with their heart, and they are staying away from hospital because they're worried. So, so they're having symptoms, but they're not going into A&E. Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, so I think talking to colleagues who are heart plumbing specialists, they say that definitely there was reports of drops in presentation with heart attack around the world. This was universal. But then they were beginning to see complications of heart attacks that they hadn't seen for many years because of the late presentation. So these days in the UK, we have an amazing system of acute heart attack centres where people will come into hospital and they'll have the artery opened immediately and the blood flow restored. And because that wasn't happening, the blood, the muscle was beginning to get damaged and they were getting things like holes in the heart as a result of that heart muscle damage that we hadn't seen for 10 or 15 years goodness so do you think now obviously people are still very anxious about going to hospital because of the uh, risk of covid would you encourage people now if they're having symptoms to make sure that they they do come to any yeah I, I absolutely would and i think that the the important point here is that i think most hospitals have got on top of the 
separating out patients with COVID and non-COVID. So the cross-infection rates are as low as they possibly can be. We're at a low point in terms of COVID infection anyway. I don't think it's going to get much better than this for at least the next year or so, unless someone comes over the hill with a vaccine. And so I think I would behave as you would normally behave if you have chest pain, particularly tight chest pain, anywhere between the chin and the umbilicus, then, and, and you're at risk, i.e. you're over the age of 30, then you, you, you should attend A&E and just get it checked out, absolutely. Okay, that's good to know. Um, we've had some questions from listeners, which you kindly agreed to, to try and answer. So uh, the first one is, is exercise or sex dangerous if you have a heart condition? Two of my friends in their 50s have had heart attacks on the squash court. This is something, you know, I've, I've heard this as well, kind of, kind of, this kind of confusion, because on one hand, doctors say you need to exercise. On the other hand, you hear people having heart attacks when they're out jogging, playing tennis, playing squash and stuff. So it's a yeah. answer. So the reason you hear about people having heart attacks when they're out jogging and having squash is because it's unusual. You don't hear about people having heart attacks while they're watching the football or uh, having their dinner, because why would that make news and why would that be interesting? You know, so it's unusual because people that are fit are less likely to have a heart attack, but they're not immune to it. No one is. So in general, doing more exercise and staying fit is universally a good thing to do for your cardiovascular system. There are two very, very rare conditions that where exercise is bad for your heart, and those are called CPVT and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. But almost everything else, even if you have a heart condition, like a past history of heart attack or even heart failure, doing exercise actually has been shown to help train up the heart and allow it to work more effectively. And so it is almost always universally a good thing to do if you have a heart condition. And also, I always think there's a bit of a kind of psychological element here where people hold on to or latch on to these stories of somebody collapsing on the, the squash court as, as almost like as a kind of rationale, you know, as a way of kind of excusing the fact that they maybe don't want to do exercise and go, oh, well, look at this. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's kind of, a, you know, it becomes a, a defence mechanism for people. That's true. And because uh, you're, you're a psychiatrist by background, aren't you? so you'll probably know this better than anyone else. But it's the same as weight loss and dieting. You know, well, I can't lose weight because my hormones are stopping me. And it's really bloody hard to lose weight. I'm struggling having been in nightingale and covid where i put on weight i'm really struggling to lose weight now so it is hard i completely accept that what is a healthy heart rate my wife and i have bought fitbits to track our daily steps and they also show your heart rate mine shows as 88 when i'm sitting on the sofa but my wife's is only 63 also what should it be when i'm walking this is, I'm really interested in this because this is kind of, you know, the kind of technology is giving us all bits of information that we didn't have in the past. Yeah. And actually, I'm sort of seeing quite a lot of anxiety around this kind of constant monitoring of our health. Lots of patients come to me with, you know, kind of what I would describe as health anxiety because they're, you know, kind of checking constantly their weight or their height and, you know, their BMI and their kind of heart rates, their sleep monitoring, all this kind of stuff. And, it, and it's kind of creating quite a lot of anxiety. It sounds like that's happening here. So, so yeah. Well, what is a healthy heart rate? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that the modern wearable technologies uh, will sometimes enforce that by setting alarms at unrealistic rates so that patients are alerted that they've got an abnormal heart rate. The normal heart rate is anywhere between zero 
and 100 at rest. And obviously zero is probably a bad heart rate to have, but anything above that that doesn't give you symptoms is fine. Uh, so my heart rate is around 40 normally, my wife's is 60, and it varies from person to person what's natural for them. And it's not to do with the fact that I'm super fit, it's just that's just natural for me and I feel fine with it. Um, if you have a low heart rate and you feel symptoms that of dizziness, uh, unexplained blackout, then that should alert you to having something checked out because it may be that the heart rate's too slow for you. Anything below 110 on average is safe. It's not going to do your heart any harm. And when you exercise, of course, your heart rate will go anywhere up to 200. I've seen people get up to 210 on exercise if they're really pushing themselves. And again, there's, that's whatever's natural for you and makes you feel good. There's a big industry about predicting heart rates and saying you've got to exercise to a particular heart rate, but I'm not convinced that there's any meaningful evidence that, that, that any of that is backed by evidence or, or data. So my, my suggestion would be if you feel good, keep doing it. And what, what, in general, do you think that Fitbits are helpful? Do they, do they pick things up that are useful you know, from a medical point of view or, or is it more just a, kind of a bit of a fad? I think that things that measure your heart rate via the pulse are generally a bit of a fad because it's quite difficult to measure the heart rate via the pulse, even with a Fitbit. There is one really important feature on some of these devices that can be very helpful, which is to tell whether your pulse is regular or irregular. Now, there's a very common condition called atrial fibrillation, which affects about one in 10 people over 70. And half of the people that have atrial fibrillation don't get any symptoms. But if you're over the age of 65 or have any other heart problems or cardiovascular problems, you may be at risk of stroke if you have atrial fibrillation. Now, the way to tell whether you have atrial fibrillation is to take your pulse. And if your pulse is constantly irregular for more than 30 seconds, and by that I mean it's not just missing a beat and then going back to normal again, then that may indicate you have atrial fibrillation and that may then give you the opportunity to prevent yourself having a stroke by getting a diagnosis and getting on stroke prevention medications. So if those sorts of technologies alert more people that they may have a problem, then that's a clearly a good thing. So, so the technology that's picking up on AF or atrial fibrillation, that can be helpful from a medical point of view, but really everything else is kind of just a bit... maybe. A bit I think, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And it's really those older patients or older people who are at higher risk that it's relevant to. It's not relevant to someone like you or me who are young, fit and beautiful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I read in the paper that lots of people don't know they have a faulty heartbeat. How would I know? Should I take my pulse? So I suppose that's kind of picking up on the question we were just talking about. Yeah, so I think if you don't know that you've got a faulty heartbeat and you're under the age of 65 and you don't have other risk factors, it, it probably doesn't matter. Um, but the way to know whether your heartbeat is normal is to uh, take your pulse. And um, the way that you do that is to just put your, your fingers lightly on your wrist next to the bone, the radius bone, which is the one that runs next to the thumb. And then if you just slide your, your fingers slightly uh, to the center of the wrist from that bone, and you rest your fingers there lightly, you'll begin to feel a pulse. And it takes a little while to get used to it. And there's instructions online. Uh, there's a, a, a website called the Atrial Fibrillation Association, 
which have a video to show you how to do that. If you rest your fingers there, you'll feel a pattern of pulse that's regular, perhaps with the odd skip beat, which is completely normal. And that's the way to know whether your heart rhythm is regular or not. So, so you don't need a fancy sort of Fitbit type thing. You can you can actually just do it yourself, just using your fingers. And it's it's yeah. in your in your middle finger, isn't it? You tend to use exactly uh, index and middle are the best usually. Yeah, and, and and not to use your thumb. I seem to remember from medical school because that's got its own own pulse. Is that true? Well, you can use your thumb, but it doesn't matter if you're taking your own pulse. So for you as a doctor, yeah, the thumb matters because you don't want to feel your own pulse. But if you're taking your own pulse, it, as long as you can feel a pulse, it doesn't really matter. And what about, you know, when people fill up in, in the neck, you know, when you sort of see on TV and films and yeah. stuff, yeah. is that taking the pulse? What's the difference between that and, your, and on your wrist? Uh, it's easier to feel a pulse if someone's blood pressure is very low. But for us as uh, the sort of general public, actually, it's no better. It's actually slightly more complicated to feel the pulse in the neck. So usually it's easier just to get re- used to feeling it in the wrist, to be honest. Richard, that's all we've got time for today, but do come back next week for part two. In the meantime, if you want more from Professor Schilling, he is at londonafcentre.com and onewellbeck.com. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. Whilst you're there, please leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. Thank you.